Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Reverend Raphael Warnick made history last January when he was elected Georgia's first Black senator. It was a critical victory benefiting from strong voter turnout in Georgia that helped flip the state blue and helped Democrats clinch a Senate majority. But Warnick is up for re-election again this year, and I want to understand how the Reverend, with less than two years in the Senate under his belt, will be able to hold on to his seat. I was also curious about Warnick's unique path to political office, a marked shift, or maybe not, from being the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. It's a story he traces in his recent memoir, A Way Out of No Way, which may be how the senator sees the fight ahead. Senator Warnock, welcome to Sway. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So talk about the book itself, A Way Out of No Way, writing it. A lot of politicians write books. Why did you decide to write this? Except that maybe all politicians write a book. Well, first of all, don't call me a politician. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. <laughs> Those, you know, I, I didn't set out— A reverend out, who stumbled into politics. Yeah, all right, okay. I didn't set out to become a politician. Um, I knew early on I would go into ministry, that I felt called to service and in the parish life, which is where I've spent the last— 25 years leading congregations. And my entry into politics is an extension of my work on a whole range of subjects that I see as moral issues. I think that healthcare is a human right. It is something certainly the wealthiest nation on the planet can and ought to provide to all of its citizens. I've worked on criminal justice reform. I've worked on voting rights, issues around immigration, building a sustainable planet uh, in the midst of challenges of climate change, poverty. These are things I've worked on, guided by my faith. And my work in the Senate is an extension of that lifelong purpose. So in the book, you write about your experience as a pastor and the legacy of spiritual activism, I think. You walk in, including your study of Reverend Martin Luther King's work. And you knew you wanted to become a pastor, you just said, when you were a little kid. And you ended up becoming one at the church he used to preach at. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm one of 12 children in my family. I'm number 11 out of 12, and I'm the first college graduate. The year I went to Morehouse College, Morehouse's tuition, room, and board was something my family could not afford. But I went principally because that was the school that Martin Luther King Jr. attended. Um, As a kid, I was absolutely enamored and captivated by his voice by his moral vision, the ways in which he used his gifts and his faith to motivate people to literally lay their bodies on the line in the hope of building a future that embraces all of our children. I was a part of that generation of kids, in fact, whose parents were fighting for King's birthday to become a national holiday. Even before it was made a federal holiday, there were parents all across this country, including my own, 
who pulled us out of school on his birthday for all-day teach-ins. I remember spending all day at the local May Street YMCA, watching Eyes on the Prize, listening to speeches, learning about Dr. King. And I was just absolutely captured by his voice and his vision. And so it was beyond my wildest imagination to think then that I'd become the pastor of the church that he led. What was particular? Was it the activism or the spiritual part of it from your admiration of King? Oh, all of it. I think when spirituality is authentic, it drives us into some form of activism because we're seeking to bear witness to God's dream for the world. King's an embodiment, a clear example of a long faith tradition that's been worked out in Black churches over centuries. The Black church was literally born fighting for freedom. Uh, It was born in protests to a doctrine that endeavored to separate bodies from souls as a way of justifying slavery. And when you separate bodies from souls, when you say that people's personal spirituality has nothing to do with the conditions that would subjugate them, that's how you end up with a Christian slaveocracy. And the church that gave birth to Dr. King The church that the slaves built bears witness to the idea that um, God creates gifts and talent and humanity and beauty and glory all over town on both sides of the track. And it is that freedom faith that gave birth not only to Martin Luther King Jr., but to so many freedom fighters. And I've tried my best in my lifetime to bear witness to the best of that tradition. So talk about then deciding to become a senator because it's, this is not how it operates up there on the Hill or in m- much of politics. So talk about how the shift to senator because is that the way you articulate that spiritual journey for yourself? Oh, you know, I return. There's a reason why I return to my pulpit every Sunday to preach. Mm-hmm. Yes, you continue to be a pastor for people who don't realize it. Absolutely. I continue to lead my church because I'm clear that I don't want to spend all of my time talking to politicians. I'm afraid I might accidentally become one. So what motivated to do it via becoming senator from your perspective? What was the main motivation? It was not a conclusion that I came quickly to. I agonized over it. I thought about it a long time because politics is messy business. I've enjoyed my years in ministry. I love being among the people. I've been honored to stand at people's bedside, even as they cross the river. I've married couples over the years. I've blessed their babies. But what that does is I think it gives you a kind of empathy. And what I hope to do is to bring the tender heart of a pastor to the tough fight of politics in the public square. I think we can use it in a moment like this. There's so much division, so much hate. There are demagogues who are trying to exploit our divisions. And um, I'm trying to stand in the tradition of my heroes like John Lewis. I was his pastor. And uh, it's often said that he was the conscience of the Congress. He, of course, was a member of the House. Well, if the Congress needs a conscience on the House side, God knows these days the Senate needs a soul. And um, I'm honored to be a pastor among peers here in the United States Senate. 
So you were elected in a special runoff election during a turbulent time of transition away from uh, President Trump. This was the day before the January 6th attack. You wrote in the book, the day of my runoff election, the day afterward, both tell us critical things about America today. January 5th represents the hope of an America moving closer to our ideal. But January 6th reveals the dark, ugly underbelly. Both are true. For now, we the people reside somewhere between the two. Talk a little bit about the contrast. Oh, it's something that I think about often. January 6th was an awful day. For the first time in the history of our republic, we witnessed uh, something other than the nonviolent transition of power. Ironically, the day before, the people of Georgia sent me, the first black senator from Georgia, only the 11th black senator in the history of our country, and sent its first Jewish senator from Georgia to the United States Senate. And then on January 6th, we witnessed a violent assault on our capital, the likes of which we haven't seen since the War of 1812. Racist and anti-Semitic signs trafficked through our capital. Police were brutalized. People died. We don't get to pretend like January 6th isn't real, like it didn't happen. Those were not tourists making their way through the capital. And it says something about how far we still have to go, because behind it was the big lie and the premise that certain voices and certain votes shouldn't count or don't count. So January 6th tells us something about America, but here's the thing. So does January 5th. Well, what? From your perspective, what does it tell you about America? That we're still wrestling with our old demons and that we have to be vigilant. And in the struggle against bigotry, that fight is never won once and for all. So talk to me about how you felt that day. Like, here you have a massive victory, really, and cause for hope. And then that. Yeah, I was feeling good right after I won my race in a hard-fought runoff. The next morning, I was on every morning show you can imagine. I thought, wow, I really have arrived. I was on The View talking to Whoopi Goldberg about this race. It was the morning of January 6th. And by lunchtime, there was a sense that something was unfolding in the Capitol and We all know what happened by the end of that day, a violent assault on our Capitol, driven by the big lie and trafficking and all kinds of xenophobia and bigotry and division and old resentments. And so it was something to turn on the television and to see what was happening, if you will, in my my new office. Where your new job was, right. And um, Did you lose hope when you saw that? No. No, I take the long view. Uh Which is? Um, It was disturbing to see, but I I was John Lewis's pastor. I don't have a right to lose hope. All right, but now your opponent, incumbent Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, had Trump's backing, but after the Capitol attack, she stepped down from Team Big Lie, I think. Others did not. How do you look upon those people that not just, it didn't just happen, it continued to happen. Millions believe this lie. What do you make of those who have doubled down and tripled down on it? I think they will have to account for their actions. And I think it's important for people to be held accountable because this isn't just about the past, the recent past. This is about the future. It's about ensuring that this kind of thing never happens again and that we secure the democracy. Nothing is more important than that because all of the things we fight for, all of the things we want uh, and desire for our children those debates happen within the context of a democracy. They assume that everybody has a voice. 
And so we've got to secure that above all else. So what have you thought of the hearings so far, the January 6th hearings? Do you think it will make a dent in what has been an essentially an effective propaganda campaign to radicalize millions of people, tens of millions of people? I think that this is work that has to be ongoing. It's not a one-off. And far beyond the days of the hearings, all of us as citizens have work to do. After all, this democracy doesn't belong to the politicians. And every now and then, uh, those of us who serve in office need to be reminded that the republic belongs to the people. Change doesn't happen from the top down. It happens from the bottom up. So for me, one of the big takeaways from January 6th is that each of us has an obligation to stand our posts and do everything we can to preserve a democratic republic. Which is what some of the protesters and then the attackers, there's a difference, select difference, believe they are doing. How do you talk to them? There's no evidence. Mm -hmm. This was a, an election in which it was proven over and over again. You know, in Georgia, we counted the, the vote several times, time and time again. So even after this episode is over, I just think it's important to do the work. And that's what my life story has been about. In no other country, for all of our country's flaws and challenges, nowhere else on the planet is my story even possible. A kid who grew up in public housing. You know, my dad used to, uh, he was a preacher and a junk man. He fed his family by loading and hauling old junk cars on the back of a truck, the mechanisms of which he designed himself. But on Sunday morning, the junk man became the preacher man. And uh, the man who picked up broken cars during the week picked up broken people on Sunday and reminded them of their value, that they have a voice, that they matter to God. And um, inspired by his example and the example of my mother who grew up in Waycross, Georgia in the 1950s, both of whom convinced me that I had the ability and the gifts to do whatever I chose to do, I continue to do that work. So what do you say to those people who attack the Capitol? I mean, don't you want to save them too on some level? Oh, I, listen, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I want to save everybody. I, I would say to all of us that we are all we've got. We are all we've got. And some things are bigger than party. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Senator Elizabeth Warren, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Senator Raphael Warnock after the break. This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life, a full day and a half 
where you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. You're running again this year against former football player Herschel Walker. It's a very tight race. One poll had you recently tied. On average, he's leading about 0.5 percentage points. What do you think will help you pull ahead? Oh, I think that the people of Georgia have a very clear choice here. And this race is about who is ready to represent the people of Georgia in the United States Senate at such a critical time in our country. And on that score, I'm proud of the work that I've done to pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill that's literally bringing billions of dollars of investments back to Georgia for roads, for bridges, for broadband. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was running the last time in rural Georgia. There are huge swaths of our state where there's little to no broadband. Farmers tell me that you can't even farm efficiently without a broadband connection. So I'm proud of that work. And right now I'm focused on uh, the pressures and the pain that hardworking families are feeling in the midst of global inflation in, in which they're dealing with these high prices at the pump. And I'm trying to cap the cost of insulin. Mm-hmm. And do you think about Walker's celebrity status as a former NFL player will influence the campaign? I mean, you did a very funny ad uh, of you trying to do athletics. Not bad, but it was pretty funny. Um how are you assessing dealing with a celebrity? Because many people sort of underestimated Trump, for example. I think these are serious times. And what you've seen is, is in me as somebody who works really hard not to take myself too seriously. You know, uh, I try to stay in my lane. So uh, I'm going to stay focused on the work that I'm trying to do for the people of Georgia. And um, I think that when you show up, when you do the work that people hired you to do in the first place, uh, they pay attention. Okay. Um, So do you worry at all about a Trump 2024 run help you or hurt you in the midterms? Here's what I worry about. I worry that our politics is too often and too much about the politicians. Um, I don't understand why we're talking about a race that's more than two years from now. The people I'm talking to on the streets They're focused on their problems right now. And what an amazing honor to have the people of your state say that we want you to represent us at the highest levels of the American government. For me, that's a sacred trust. And I intend to honor it for as long as the people of Georgia uh, give me the amazing opportunity to do so. Which essentially stop talking about Trump who occupies a lot of people's brains across the political spectrum, for sure. Um, let's talk about the, the, the state itself, because it's such a, Georgia's such an interesting state. Stacey Abrams is in a tough race against Governor Brian Kemp. On average, she's trailing, but she's 
proved to be someone who can have voter turnout. Um, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger won the GOP primary, which is certainly a signal that Georgians care about election integrity. Um, when you look at Georgia, which I think surprised everybody in the last election, what kind of state is it now? Obviously, there's a lot of states that are clearly red, clearly blue. Georgia is something else. And I don't even want to say purple because it shifts back and forth. There, there's no shortage of pundits to slice us and dice us into all of these different categories. And I, I'm going to let them do that work. And I'm going to stay focused on the work that I do. So when you talk to these voters, what is important to them? You say you talk to them. Is it abortion, guns, election integrity, inflation, gas prices? What do you What do you think is the most important concerns on their mind right now as you go through the state and talk to them? At the end of the day, I think all of us want to make sure that our families are going to be okay. And um, one of the things that I'm proud of that we achieved is that we confirmed to the United States Supreme Court Katanji Brown Jackson. And the day we did that, the chamber was full in the Senate, which is rare. And the vice president of the United States was sitting there and she was talking to me and my colleague, Cory Booker. And she said, you know, this moment is so special. You guys should take a moment and write a letter to somebody who comes to mind. And she reached into a folder and actually gave each of us uh, a sheet of her own letterhead, the letterhead of the vice president of the United States. And um, I wrote a letter to my five-year-old daughter. And I said, to her, in essence, dear Chloe, today we confirm for the first time in our history a Supreme Court justice who looks like you, with hair like yours. While we were doing this, a friend of mine, the Vice President of the United States, suggested that I write a letter. By the way, she's the first Vice President who looks like you, with hair like yours. I'm writing this letter to tell you that you can achieve whatever you set your mind to achieve, love, dad. That was my letter to my daughter. But as I've been thinking about this in the weeks since, that's really what legislation is. Public policy is a letter to our children. And I think whether we're talking about health care or what we're going to do about gun safety, we should ask ourselves what we want that letter to say. All right, well, let's talk about that. Um, tell me what, if anything, you hope to get done before November on these issues. Gun control. Uh, a compromise was reached in the Senate on a package that includes incentives for states to enact red flag laws, funds to support safety and mental health programs at schools, and making juvenile uh, records of gun buyers under age 21 available when they undergo background checks. Do you think it can become law? I think that um, here's what cannot happen. We cannot have... 19 babies slaughtered in a classroom. And this is not the first time, tragically, we've seen something like this. And the Senate do nothing. We've been at a log jam for 30 years. I thought something might happen after Sandy Hook. I was looking at it then as a citizen. And we're not going to agree on all the things that need to be done. But the answer cannot be that the Senate is going to do nothing. So I'm encouraged by the developments that we've seen we have a framework uh, for getting something done, and I'm still very hopeful that we will get something passed. Okay. Student debt. You write about your own experience in the book of receiving Pell Grants helped you pay for college, and that relieving student debt is among your highest priorities. What are the chances for that? 
the good news is that the president of the United States has the ability to do substantial student debt cancellation. And I am pushing and advocating for him to do just that. You know, I was the first college graduate in my family. I know what it's like to need Pell Grants, low-interest student loans. Now, I paid all of my student loans off, um, but it was a different time. And in the years since I graduated from college, our kids are literally drowning in student debt. They are. So how do you get them to do it? Well, I've, I, you, I've continued to advocate for him to do it. Right. So do you have a strategy besides saying, please do this? What, what do, you, do you think it will happen? I can't speak for the president of the United States. I represent the people of Georgia, and uh, he has the ability to do it. And, okay, yeah. criminal justice reform. Obviously, Chesa uh, Bowden in San Francisco was recalled. You write poignantly about how your older brother, Keith, was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. He's since been released, uh, but his incarceration was for over 20 years, deeply impacted you and your family. He was a police officer uh, who was convicted of working with drug dealers. Talk about that, criminal justice reform. What do you think the most important thing to happen there is? Well, the United States of America is 4% of the world's population. We warehouse 25% of the world's prisoners. We've built the biggest mass incarceration structure in, in the history of humankind. And so I think we need to reflect on that. And over the years of visiting my brother in prison and visiting other families, because I'm a pastor, uh, it's given me a certain perspective about this work. And it's work that inspired our church. Several years ago, we had something called an expungement or record restriction event in which um, we uh, partnered with law enforcement, with the sheriff's department, with the courts, with the prosecutor's office, the public defender, to clear the criminal arrest records of people who managed to get their life together. They very often had crimes that they were accused of, not convicted, accused of, and they still couldn't get a job, still couldn't get an apartment. And um, uh, I've been involved in this work of trying to bring equity and give people a path. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor, and here's what I know. None of us wants to be judged forever by uh, the worst mistake we've ever made, and it is an expression of grace, as some of which all of us need uh, at some point. Voting rights, major legislation like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is stalled. Will Cinema and Mansion budge? How do you get them to budge? I believe that uh, the democracy is the most important thing. Democracy is, for me, the political enactment of a spiritual idea that all of us have a voice, that we all have human dignity, and our voices ought to be heard and uh, determining the direction of our country and, the, and our destiny within it. Um, we didn't get the bill passed this time around. All 50 Democrats were on the bill, but there was disagreement about changing the rules. Um, but I'm not discouraged. Again, who am I to be discouraged? I, I was the pastor of John Lewis, who had no reason to believe that he could win. All right, abortion, what latitude does the Senate have to influence this issue now? You've talked about being a pro-choice pastor, and of course, the pro-life movement seizes a lot on religious roots. Um, how do you think the pro-choice movement can win over religious voters? Oh, the country already overwhelmingly supports 
Roe v. Wade. Yes, they do. But this smaller group of people. Yeah, ordinary folks on the left and the right support a woman's right to choose. Um, I have a, a deep and abiding reverence for life and a profound respect for choice. And as I've said, I think that a patient's room is too narrow and cramped a space for a woman, her doctor, and the United States government. But sometimes we're so focused on, you know, narrowly on differences that we have, but sometimes beneath those perceived differences, there is some continuity if we would look for it. So part of what I've said to my friends in the faith community and throughout, if life is what you're concerned about and you're concerned about the preservation of life, maybe we want to agree on reproductive choice, but we should all be able to agree that the rates of maternal mortality in our country are abysmally high and unacceptable, particularly in a state like Georgia. And for Black women, Black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth or as a result of childbirth than their white sisters, even when the the insurance and the income is the same. That's something we can do something about, which is why I was proud to partner with uh, Republican Marco Rubio to put together a maternal mortality bill. Um, I'd like to end on your dad. You wrote a beautiful piece about him from the book. And you, when you were giving your eulogy to him, you said, uh, you know, he wasn't a particularly loud, uh, famous or anything else, but you compared him to Enoch, that he walked with God, which was the only comment on Enoch in the Bible, as I recall. Um, can you just end on that? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, my dad is, my, my dad remains my hero. And uh, I think about him often. Um, he was extraordinary and yet ordinary. He had none of the credentials that I have. I have four degrees. My dad did not have a single degree. Uh, But every day of my life, I'm standing on tiptoe trying to catch up to the giant of a small man that he was. Uh, I think he's like so many people that other people overlook. Uh, He loved his family. He took care of his children. Uh, he took care of the people in his church. He was a patriot. He loved this country. Even served in the military. Born in 1917, he's a part of a generation of black men who loved America until America could figure out how to love them back. And uh, he passed that love and faith on to me. And uh, I am uh, forever in his debt, even while I try to build a future uh, for my children. So you count on the Enochs of this world more than the demagogues? Ordinary people. My whole life's work has been about ordinary folks. All right. On that, we will end. Senator Warnock, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Caitlin O'Keefe, Wyatt Orm, and Kristen Lynn. With original music by Isaac Jones, engineering by Pat McCusker, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Christina Samuelewski. Special thanks to Shannon Busta. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a search for the soul and conscious of Congress, which you will never find, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.